Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 119 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this Bar Cart Foundations episode where we zoom in on one particular aspect of cocktails and home bartending and examine it up close so that you can be a better bartender. The topic of this episode is the humble wash line. This is where the rubber of the drink meets the road of the glass, or more precisely, the line that indicates how much liquid is in your glass. For most of us, the wash line is a thing of secondary or perhaps even tertiary concern, but for professional bartenders and mixologists, it's an integral part of any well-constructed drink. But wash lines are unexpectedly difficult to talk about. I mean, is a wash line a real thing or an abstract concept? Does it exist in the glass, in the liquid, or in the mind of the beholder? And just what exactly can a wash line tell you about a cocktail or the person who made it. All of this and more in today's episode. But first, let's do what we do best and give you a chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is The Last Word, a drink you may have heard mentioned on this show in the past because it is, in fact, my favorite drink. To make The Last Word cocktail, you'll need one ounce of gin, one ounce of green chartreuse, one ounce of maraschino liqueur, I prefer Luxardo, and one ounce of fresh lime juice. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake vigorously for about 15 seconds until the drink is well chilled and diluted, and strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. A couple things to note here. One is that this is what we call a perfect cocktail, like the Negroni, where all the ingredients are added in equal parts. These types of cocktails are really great for experimenting with different base spirits, so you'll frequently see last word variations with other clear spirits like rum, tequila, or mezcal. The other thing to keep in mind is that this hyper-complex drink is not typically garnished. Sometimes you'll see folks sink a maraschino cherry in the drink, probably because they're primed by the maraschino liqueur, but I prefer to keep my last word minimal and let the ingredients do the talking. We're launching a video in association with this episode where I use the last word cocktail to examine wash lines in various different types of glassware. And I chose to do this because the milky green color of this drink offers really nice contrast. So please head over to the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast or head directly to our YouTube channel and check out that video if you want to see me make my favorite cocktail and play with different wash lines. And with that, let's dive right into this Barcart Foundations episode and learn why a simple line on a glass is more important than you might think. I want to begin this episode with a story. It happened just this past week when my wife and I were trying a new bar that recently opened here in D.C. 
Because this is somewhat of a cautionary tale, I won't name the bar, but the fact that it had just opened is pretty important to the story. So we walk into this place, right? We grab a seat at the bar and we both decide that we're in the mood for a Sazerac, which is one of the cocktails listed on the menu by name. So it's not like we're pulling the bartender over and saying, hey, can you make a Sazerac? It's listed right on the menu. After we order, I go into what I call like my scope out mode. I'm looking at what kinds of bottles they have behind the bar, what local ingredients they're featuring in their spirits program, and just how the bartenders are moving around and doing their job. I noticed that our bartender went to the other corner of the bar to make our cocktails, kind of behind somewhere, uh, couldn't really see her. And... I didn't think much of it. Maybe that's where the absinthe and the bitters were located. Maybe that's where the glassware was stored. I don't know. Didn't didn't really phase me. A couple minutes later, our drinks arrive in these big double rocks glasses, which are traditional for a Sazerac. Without ice, which is also traditional for a Sazerac, and with a very low wash line. Obviously, that's what happens when you take a three-ish ounce drink and put it in a big bucket glass without any ice. You get a low wash line. Not inherently good or bad, but it is a data point. Now, these particular Sazeracs were the correct rosy color, thanks to the Peychaud's bitters, and they did have lemon twist garnishes, two other kind of quality indicators in a Sazerac, but the twists were kind of short and ugly, and the bartender cut a slit down the middle of each twist and used that to perch them on the rim of the glass. So, I don't know, kind of two strikes right there, right away. Got an ugly garnish and a low wash line, and that's when I took a sip. Turns out our Sazeracs were barely chilled, which means they weren't stirred for long enough, and... They also weren't served in a chilled rocks glass. It was a room temp rocks glass with a slightly chilled drink, which means that they started warmish and ended up almost room temperature before we were done drinking them. Now, obviously, this is a new bar. The team's still trying to master the menu, figure out how their ideal workflow looks, but a bad Sazerac is a bad Sazerac. And as a customer, when you're paying $13 for a drink, you want to be confident in the quality you'll receive. Let's summarize the little clues in that story that led me to understand why this drink was bad. First, there's the fact that the bartender kind of hid from us while making our drinks. This might not have been intentional, but when someone orders a nice stirred drink, part of the experience is seeing it assembled and watching the bartender execute their trade. Are they using an atomizer for the absinthe or are they doing that full glass rinse? These things matter in the world of the Sazerac and I didn't get to see them. Then there's the low wash line. Again, not inherently good or bad, but it does sort of suggest that they didn't plan their glassware intentionally for this drink. These were the House Rocks glasses, and that's what all the boozy cocktails were served in. Another missed opportunity for intentional design in the cocktail program. In addition, the ugly garnishes indicate a lack of precision or experience on the part of the bartender, which isn't her fault per se. But as a manager, you want to make sure that every drink being served looks beautiful. Just like you wouldn't want a chef to spend a ton of time making your meal and then just slap it on a plate haphazardly, you want your cocktail to feel clean and crisply executed when it's served. Now, the problem with the Sazeracs was that they were served warm. 
but all these little quality indicators along the way, including that suspiciously low wash line, allowed me to identify a faulty drink and then understand why it was faulty. Now, will I give that bar another chance? Hmm, maybe in a couple months when they have their act together a bit more, but you can certainly bet that I'm gonna be on the lookout for a colder drink and a higher wash line next time I visit. Probably my favorite trippy thing about a wash line is, well, that it is a thing. You can literally identify it when you peer at your cocktail glass. You can identify it with your senses. But it's also sort of a relationship between two things, the drink and the vessel that holds it. And because one characteristic of liquids is that they fit the shape of any container, both the cocktail and the glass contribute equally to the wash line. Knowing this, one trend to keep in mind is the size, or more specifically, the volume of popular glassware through the years. This is something that has fluctuated widely since the birth of the cocktail, and it's one of those form-follows-function situations. If you want a better understanding of the drinks that were developed during a certain time period, look at the type of glassware they were being served in. At the turn of the 20th century, most cocktail glasses were a lot smaller than the ones we currently see behind bars. Instead of stemmed glassware that held like four to eight ounces of liquid like what we have today, the standard volume was only about three to four ounces back in the golden age of the cocktail. Then after World War II, you had the popularization of tiki, which required large glassware like those hurricane glasses and all manner of tiki mugs. And tiki is largely exempt from the wash line conversation because these drinks are often served over crushed ice and consumed in ceramic tiki mugs using a straw. So if your tiki cocktail doesn't make it to the top of the glass, no worries, just add a bit more crushed ice and you're good to go. From the 1960s to the 1990s, large glassware got popular. The drinks that people were consuming during this time often contained stuff like vodka, orange juice, pre-made sour mix, and peach schnapps. And when you're downing Harvey Wallbangers and Long Island iced teas, you just sort of expect them to be served in a big honkin' highball glass. So during the cocktail dark ages, the glassware got big and the drinks got worse. Today, thanks to the cocktail renaissance, we're enjoying a swing back in the direction of smaller and more intentionally chosen glassware, which is kind of cool. People are actually taking the time to look at their cocktail menu and consider the proper glassware for each drink. But what does it mean for home bartenders? I mean, it's not like each household has a dedicated glassware budget like most cocktail bars. So knowing what we know about glassware and about the importance of wash lines, how can we use this information to make better drinks at home? Really, it boils down to one simple question. Where do I want my wash line and why? Once you answer that question, the rest is just a little bit of math and some technical execution. For most cocktails, whether they're served up or on the rocks, you're looking for a wash line that's about 10 to 15% below the rim of the glass. This prevents sloshing and spilling while still presenting a drink that has the appearance of fullness. The one exception to this wash line rule is when you're making an egg white drink with a frothy head. Because this cloud-like matrix of denatured proteins tends to stick together, it's okay for it to go right up to the rim of the glass or even a little bit above. 
and in some extreme cases like the Ramos Gin Fizz, bartenders actually make a game out of how high their foam extends above the glass. The cool thing about egg white cocktails is that you do still actually get a wash line. It's the place where the liquid ends and the foam begins, and that in and of itself adds a cool element of contrast to the aesthetics of the drink. Without this contrast, we wouldn't be able to admire the beauty of some of our favorite cocktails, like the Clover Club and the Pisco Sour. So, if you decide you want your wash line to be in that 10 to 15% Goldilocks zone where it appears full but doesn't spill, you need to consider the four parts of the wash line equation. Glass volume, liquid ingredients, dilution, and ice or displacement. This last item is for cocktails that are served on the rocks or with a garnish that displaces some of the liquid volume of the drink. A big brandied cherry, a set of cocktail olives on a pick, or any other sizable garnishes fall into this category. To find the volume of your glass, simply fill up your cocktail glass with water, right? This can be a rocks glass or a stemmed cocktail glass, and then dump it in the measuring cup and observe. Take this number and then subtract 10 to 15%, and that is the volume you're gonna want to try and hit if you're aiming for that perfect wash line. So for a six ounce cocktail glass, you'll wanna drink with around five ounces of liquid volume. Or let's say you're starting with a cocktail and you want to figure out the perfect glass to serve it in. Let's say you're starting with the recipe here, not the glass. All you need to do is measure up all the ingredients, add the dilution, and determine if any ice or garnish displacement will occur. If we use our featured cocktail, the last word, as an example, that means we take four ounces of liquid ingredients and add on about a 20% dilution factor from shaking and then zero displacement from ice or garnishes. That measures out to about 4.8 ounces, which is right around that Goldilocks wash line on a six ounce glass. So. What you learn here is that it would be totally unfeasible to serve this in a five ounce glass because that would almost definitely result in spillage, but that you certainly wouldn't wanna put it in anything larger than six ounces because then the glass starts to feel a bit empty. One last little tip for you. Let's say you have a standard ice size for the cocktails you serve on the rocks. In my case, I use two inch square ice cubes, but Inches is a dimensional measure, not a volumetric one. So we still need to find out that displacement volume. In my experience, the quickest way to figure out how much liquid volume your rock's gonna displace is to put your rocks glass in a bowl, fill the glass with water all the way to the top, and then place your ice cube in so that it then displaces the liquid into the bowl. All you gotta do then is remove the rocks glass, measure how much water was displaced, and voila, that is what you need to factor into your wash line equations for drinks you're serving on the rocks. As you can see, just like the wash line sits right where the drink meets the glass, it also sits right at the intersection of form and function, technique and aesthetics. Yes, we want our drinks to look really nice, but most of the details and recommendations in this episode have dealt primarily with standardization and execution. To this end, 
the last and really critical point I want to make about wash lines is what they can signal to a bartender who's paying attention. If you've done the work to carefully choose your glassware with a nice full wash line in mind, you should be highly suspicious of any cocktail that doesn't fit that appearance. As often happens, bartenders need to multitask. At a high-volume cocktail bar, this means stirring two drinks at once while trying to remember the next order. And in the home, it means you might need to answer the door or stir something on the stove right in the middle of building your drink. So if you're like me and you're prone to making a little mistake every couple years, it's good to know that you can take one quick glance at your glass and be able to tell if maybe you left out one of the ingredients or perhaps you shook the drink for too long. This brings us full circle to the cautionary tale of the Sazerac at the beginning of this episode. Even though I wasn't the person who constructed the drink, I could tell right away that there was probably something wrong with it. That confidence, that fullness, that triune intersection of liquid, glass, and air is the difference between a cocktail that you can really be fully present with, one you can soak in using all your senses, and a cocktail that will, more likely than not, disappoint. I'm Modern Bar Cart CEO Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this Bar Cart Foundations episode. If there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future Foundations episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at modernbarcart.com. And until next time, make sure to mind your wash lines. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, a bad Sazerac, and a little wash line magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.